Can't Work, Part 2. In Part 1, I outlined seven underlying reasons why you might be struggling with work. We're now going to look at seven strategies which could help you to get working and dissolve some of the work blocks that you're experiencing. First idea, stand up to the tyranny of perfectionism. Try to break through the idea that your self-worth depends only on your work performance. Try to move from thinking of work as a test of your worth to an idea that you are, more simply, doing a job of work and that any critical feedback you are given will be most valuable if you can give yourself some space between you and the work to think about it and in all likelihood take it on board. You may have to challenge the demand that not only does the work produced have to be perfect, but also challenge the demand that you do the work perfectly. Work can't be done without anxiety, with complete personal satisfaction, with total audience acceptance or adulation, with no internal or external criticism. Maybe it will be a struggle, and maybe you won't feel entirely happy with it, and maybe you'll receive some criticism possibly alongside some praise, and maybe you can cope with all this. Remind yourself that the work you produce doesn't have to be perfect. And remind yourself that the process of working doesn't have to be perfect. Second idea, remember you are here out of choice. The language one uses, whether spoken aloud or heard as an internal dialogue, often reinforces feelings of victimhood or that work is just a burden or an imposition by an authority we would like to resist. If we start talking to ourselves in terms of I've got to or I should or I just have to, then this is likely to evoke a contradictory and conflicting negative voice. We have a natural desire to protect ourselves from and to resist being told what to do. Some people may have that adolescent impulse more than others. We need to change these have-tos into words which suggest your own agency. I choose, I will, I decide. You may even have doubts about the course you're studying and feel that it would not be your choice or maybe you're doing it to make others proud but you could still take a clear decision to commit and engage with the work. By committing you might actually start to find interest or satisfaction in it, or you might just reason that the work is worth it to get the qualification. If you don't feel that you've chosen to be here, you might consider choosing it now. Or you may choose, thoughtfully, to try to change your course, or even to leave. Third idea. Retrain the voices in your head. If you find yourself being too self-critical and responding to that criticism by not working, you may need to challenge the domination of that too critical voice in your head. More useful than a voice which is constantly negatively judging you and your efforts would be to find some part of you, some other voice, which could be supportive and strong. You might want to think of the internal critic as a bully who for too long has been the only one to speak at your internal committee meetings, it's time to hear from other members of the committee 
including this new character, who might remind you maybe of a good teacher or an ideal parent who, when it comes to helping you manage your work, is generous and supportive, but also kindly and firm. If you can cultivate the voice of this character inside you, and you could never find a perfect balance between support and firmness, then you can allow it to consider your work habits and adjust them as you need to. If you're being lazy, you might need a gentle telling off and some new strategy. If too self-critical, some genuine support and encouragement. This character might help you too to think through with a new perspective some of the ways in which you perceive yourself and your work. Are you really so far behind the others in your group? Are you forgetting all the positive things your tutor mentioned because she also made some criticism at the end of the tutorial? Is it really true that you work better when you leave your work to the last minute? This is all about reality checking in a more balanced and reasonable way. Fourth idea, break it down. You have a project to do a dissertation, a thesis, or just your weekly essay or problem sheet. It all feels overwhelming. Where to start? It'll be very difficult to start if you insist on there being a right place to start, or if you feel you have to be in the right mood to start. If you think that you must begin efficiently and easily and brilliantly, rather than allowing yourself to start and giving yourself time to learn and develop confidence, it will be hard to start at all. Develop a reverse calendar. Start with the ultimate deadline and then move back step by step to the present, setting yourself daily goals. Great and famous writers who often struggle to motivate themselves to produce because they have so little given structure to their working life and what they do is so obviously incredibly hard, tend to set themselves what seem to be childishly simple targets. Victor Hugo had to write 1,000 words a day and would not let his servant give him his clothes until he did. Anthony Trollope wrote for three hours every day and if he finished a novel after two and a half hours, he had to start another novel in the half an hour left. So if you set yourself a defined goal, you begin to focus on the daily process of work, have a greater sense of control and some relief from external pressure and a greater sense of accomplishment on completing subtasks. And if you don't manage to reach your goal in the day, remind yourself of that firm but supportive voice. Tell yourself off just a little, but don't get into a nice spiral of guilt and self-blame, which will make it very hard to get going on your goal tomorrow. Fifth idea. Anxiety won't kill you. It might just motivate you. Let yourself be anxious, and know that it is normal to feel anxious, and that probably you can bear it. Can you see stress and worry as preparing you for positive action? Anytime we start something important than you, we're likely to have these feelings. You might just need to support yourself and push yourself, that firm and supportive voice again, across the threshold of getting started and involved. Think of hovering on the edge of a cold swimming pool. You jump and splash around for a while and then you might not want to come out. You might just have to get into the habit of jumping in every time you want to work. 
You might benefit from thinking about how you will cope if things do go wrong. And the thing you most fear, your supervisor's harsh criticism, getting a third, does happen. True confidence might demand that you contemplate or even experience failure, and that you pick yourself up, try again, and carry on. It is possible to prepare for the worst, know that you can cope with it, and then allow yourself to focus on the work that will lead you to the best you can do. Sixth idea, turn towards the things that scare you. Get used to going towards things that you would rather put off or avoid. We have a natural tendency to want to avoid or run. We're programmed to avoid threat in this way and not to be too subtle in distinguishing the nature of these threats. An impending essay deadline might seem more like that hostile wild animal that our ancestors had to flee from or fight thousands of years ago. You can retrain yourself to go towards this perceived threat and begin to realise that it's not so threatening after all, especially when you start to engage with the task. Someone in the Can't Work workshop we run at the counselling service made the suggestion, which rings true to me, that we can practice not avoiding things by starting with seemingly insignificant tasks. So, you need to buy a pint of milk and you're tempted to put it off. Don't. Buy the pint of milk. Do the washing rather than postpone. Just answer that email. The more you do it, the easier it is to do. And remember too, that even when working we might be avoiding the thing that scares us most. We could be endlessly rewriting that chapter to avoid the next one, which we know will be more difficult. Seventh and final idea. Beware of grey time. Make work more like work. And more importantly, enjoy some guilt-free play. The problem can be that when you're not doing much or any work, you feel guilty and can't have much fun either. All time feels like grey time and you're not being productive, but you're not clearly finished with work and enjoying something else either. We tend to respond well to putting boundaries around the working day. After all, that is the way that most people in the non-student world operate. I read an article some years ago about a man who was working at home as a website designer and getting very little done because of distractions and this all-time-being-grey-time phenomenon. So he decided to go to work. He got up in the morning, he put on a suit, he walked out of the house, he walked round the block, he walked back into the house and he sat down at his desk. And at the end of the working day, he got up from his desk, he walked out of the house, he walked round the block again, he walked back into his house and changed from his suit to another set of non-work clothes. He marked the difference between working and not working, and said that he immediately became more productive as well as gaining time away from work for other things. What could you do to benefit from this idea of establishing a clearer delineation between working and not working? Make sure you get out of your room and work in a library, Arrange to meet a friend for breakfast or at the library at the same time each morning. It may take a while, 
even some weeks of persistence to establish a regular work habit. And as a student, it may be that you would not want to work from nine to five every day. But perhaps, like most other people who work, you might need a routine and some work rituals. Try to vary them if you get stale. A change of scene, a different library might do it. And try to start early-ish with the most challenging work. Better, for example, to do your writing in the morning and the research later in the day. Otherwise, at some level, you know you're putting something off. And this can lead to demoralisation. Try to put boundaries around time within a working hour too. You can get more done in 40 minutes of concentrated work than you can in an hour of sort of working. Plus, you get 20 minutes break to get away from the screen, go for a walk, do something physical or social. The idea of each hour being divided into work time and non-work time. And think of how you might organise your hour creatively to suit you, your mood, the kind of work you're doing. Is a concrete way of thinking of this firm but kind voice in your head. You do the work and you also reward yourself with a break. None of the ideas in this podcast will be of any use unless you apply them. So it's now time to decide on your one underlying reason from all the ideas that we discussed in part one and your one practical strategy from all the things discussed in this podcast to take away and use over time. It's also unlikely that any resolution you might make now to put an idea into practice is going to transform your working habits unless you persist with that idea over time. And it will not be here and now that things can change, but in the moments when you choose to think differently, or do something else, or challenge yourself rather than falling back into old habits. And it won't be every time that you succeed. As G.K. Chesterton apparently said, if a thing's worth doing, it's worth doing badly. You may have days when you feel like you can't work. And if you allow yourself to criticise yourself for that too much, you will fall into some kind of despair and sink back into old habits. Try to support yourself and just try again the next day. You don't have to do any of this perfectly. Just well enough to start gaining more satisfaction and more pleasure from your work and from life outside of work.